Amen. Thanks so much, Pastor. Now let's all find in the Bible the book of Judges, the book of Judges. Reading the book of Judges can be a disturbing experience, a very interesting thing. But I was made to read the book of Judges for a seminary course I taught at a different seminary. Sorry, but we're very forgiving and merciful today. And matter of fact, one of my students is right back there. I remember you. But I tell you what, I learned what Judges was all about. Did you know that every book in the Bible needs to be in there? <laughs> and that a lot of it is finding out what it's all about. It's really quite amazing. In my reading, I read commentaries. That's okay to do also. Well, I think this week I've mentioned the Greek and I've mentioned commentaries, so I've turned off a whole lot of you already. But anyway, uh, and commentaries on the book of Judges will say that uh, that is Judges. I'm going to say Joshua. Commentaries on the book of Joshua will say that it's about victory through faith and that Judges is about defeat through compromise. That's enough right there for the morning. <laughs> See, victory through faith and defeat through compromise. And now we're going to Judges chapter 1. We're going to see how faith turned into compromise. And I remember when I went off to Bible college, the concern in fundamentalist uh, Bible colleges was the compromise going on. And you know what? The compromise led into defeat, with no doubt. Uh, the evangelical Bible-believing movement has not been in victory. No, we've been in defeat, and it came through compromise. Quite interesting. But I don't sure, I'm not sure we got what compromise was really about, but we're going to right now. And I'm going to read with you an extended passage of Scripture. Let me mention this before I start reading. Uh, I was in, I think, a prayer meeting in Michigan. This is years before the Michigan Revival Conference. A small group of earnest men, and we were praying for revival. And as we prayed together, I mentioned to everyone something I had just learned. Uh, did you know when you read your Bible, you learn things? And I said, the night before Jesus died, he gave a talk, talk about one talk, recorded in John 13, actually then I was saying 14, 15, and 16, but I've expanded what I say about that now. And it was all the night before he died, recorded in the book of John, and actually it's these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters out of 21. That would say there's something important about this discourse, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That John gave it five chapters, which are really about the abundant life, John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And, there, and sometimes in churches, I would say, now, if all I did was get up here and say, if you would go home and read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, slow you would have the master himself teach you how to live the victorious Christian life. Amen. And I would say, now, uh, just telling you that, I could sit down and not come back for the rest of the meetings, and I would have done you a lot of good. Now, I did come back and preach the rest of the meetings, too. But I'm not kidding you. That's the truth. Those chapters are so powerfully impacting. A year later, I think the same group of guys got together to pray, and one of the men said, you know what? What impacted me last year was when you said John 13 through 17. 
or what I was saying then was 14 through 16. And uh, he said, it's changed my life. <laughs> changed my life. And one of the pastors there said, I live, John, 14 through 16. <laughs> and my church hears it all the time. And I'm going to tell you, if you got into it, it would transform your life. Here's Jesus Christ himself saying, here's how to live. Abide in me. And here's why there's going to be victory and there's going to be peace and there's going to be productivity. Everything you long for is going to happen from the inside out. Wow, it's quite amazing. So uh, I would uh, preach on this as I started traveling. I would preach on passages from John 13 through 17. And uh, matter of fact, somebody was teasing me last night. I don't think it was in public, but uh, uh, said uh, I was making a joke about being here at uh, Falls or at Baptist College of Ministry. How Flanders says 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, which I often do. And uh, they were mocking me. I was so deeply hurt by that, but they were <laughs> having fun with me. Oh, but you know what I decided several years ago? I need to write something about that. And now the book has come out as a devotional study on the abundant life from John 13 through 17. And they've published it, of course. And I'm not just trying to sell books, but I'm going to tell you something. This one will help you. Dwelling in Beulah Land, another thing I learned in my visits to the Victory Conference. I don't think it was taught here. I think I taught it. And that is Beulah Land in your hymn book is not heaven. Yeah. Uh, some of the newer songs make Beulah Land heaven, but not the ones that are in the hymn book. Because a hundred years ago, at camp meetings and at uh, conferences, uh, preachers started using a passage in the book of Isaiah to use Beulah Land to refer to the spirit-filled Christian life. I can prove that to you in just a minute, but I'm not going to. Beulah Land, that's what it, the Christian life dwelling is Beulah Land is living on that higher level. And it puts a smile on your face and gives you miracles. Wow. So anyway, if you can get that book, I think it will really help you. Not by the book itself, but by it pointing you to John 13 through 17. So please do it. I think it will be a permanent uh, addition to your life. Now I'm going to read Judges chapter 1. And it's a long passage of scripture. So I'm going to have to ask you a favor to pay attention and to follow what we're reading, and then I'll talk about it for a little while, and I'll be all done. Oh, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, that is another tribe, Come up with me into my lot, my allotment, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. Some of you know this already. But Simeon and Judah were to inherit a property in the promised land that was basically the same. So now they were being sent to conquer their lot or their allotment. Okay, And uh, verse 3 and Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went, uh, Simeon went with him. 
And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. Now, this will be an important piece of information. Two years. Perizzites were not a nation. Perizzites were Canaanites. And actually, the name Perizzite means flatlanders. So they were Canaanites who lived in the flat country. Uh, that's what that is. There's a reason for me to tell you that now. And the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him. And they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled. And they pursued after him. And caught him. And cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And notice why they did that. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten, that's seventy kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem, and had taken it, and smitten it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain, and in the south, and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in the Hebron. Now, uh, the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, and they slew Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. And from thence, he went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir before was Kirjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Aksah, my daughter to wife. And Abdiel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it and gave him Aksah, and he gave him Aksah, the daughter to wife, his daughter to wife. And it came to pass, when she came to him, that she moved him to ask of her father a field, and she lighted from off her ash. And Caleb said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs, and the nether springs. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. Okay, you still with me? Verse 17. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. Now follow this. And the name of the city was called Horma. And uh, Judah took Geza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon, these are Philistine cities, with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain because they were told to do that. They were told that your commission is to conquer Canaan land. It will be your land. But you must destroy 
or drive out all the Canaanites before you can inhabit that land. And the Lord was with Judah, verse 19, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not follow this, could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, and as Moses said, and he uh, expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Now I want you to follow what's going on here. Uh, they've come into the promised land, the land of Canaan. They have promises from God. They are fighting a supernatural war to drive out and destroy the Canaanites. And uh, the land will now be the promised land. That's where they will live and will serve the Lord. So who shall go first? It was Judah and Simeon, and they went in, and you saw how they did that down below. But follow the change in this chapter. Matter of fact, let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to follow what you're actually showing us through this narrative. And help us, Lord, to avoid a compromise and to avoid the cause of compromise. Give us faith, Lord, that we might go forward and conquer the foe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you are still with me? How many of you have already fallen asleep? Okay. How many of your mind has gone elsewhere? Don't do that. You've got to deliberately read this with me because it's the book of Judges. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites, they were a kind of Canaanite. Uh, but the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell in the children with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day, and the house of Joseph. They also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph sent to descry Bethel. Now the name of the city was before Luz. <coughs> And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city. And they said unto him, Show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance of the city, they spoke the city with the edge of the sword, but they, go, uh, they let go the man and his family, and all his family. And the man went into the land of the Hittites, and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibdium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Now, let me ask you a question. At this point, are the Israelites being obedient to the Lord or disobedient? And the level of disobedience and compromise is rising, if you follow very carefully here. Uh, uh, verse, the end of verse 27. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them, drive them out. Now, who knows what it means to be put to tribute? He made them into slaves. 
Now, there's some controversy, sometimes discussions, about slavery in the Bible. And I won't. Actually, slavery is contrary to the royal law, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. But many of the slaves in the Old Testament were grateful to be slaves, like these Canaanites. Because according to the command of God, they were to be wiped out and killed. And I might rather spend the rest of my life as a slave than be dead. Maybe you feel different than that, but anyway. So they were now put under tribute. Verse 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun, of course these are tribes of Israel, drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Kaholoi, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Ahalab, nor of Akzib, nor of Helba, nor of Afik, nor of Rehob. I should have practiced reading these words this morning, but you'll have mercy on me. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Enath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites and the, inhabit- the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Enath became tributaries under them. And the Amorites, now here's another word for you. Amorite is not another nation. These are Canaanites. Okay. The Perizzites were Canaanites who dwelt in the flat country. The Amorites were hillbillies. <laughs> the word Amorite means that they lived in the mountains, okay? But they were Canaanites who lived up in the mountains. Okay. Okay, I've lost where I was. 31? 34, okay. Yes, there we are. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan. Now watch this. The children of Dan were Israelites. Forced them into the mountain. For they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in, the, in Mount Heres, in Ajilan, and in Shealabim. Uh, yet the hand, the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. And the coast of the Amorites was from the going up of Akaribim, from the rock and upward. Okay, now, pretty interesting uh, chapter. You probably don't think so. But when, <laughs> when you follow what's going on, it was extremely interesting. And uh, they began to disobey the Lord about the con- conquest of Canaan. Have we prayed? Okay, well, I'm glad you remember. That's what we're <laughs> Now the chapter begins in verse 1 with the death of Joshua. Follow the death of a prominent and important leader. In the Old Testament, it's always a very critical time. The death of Moses, the death of Joshua, and down the line. Because it matters when somebody's life goes off the scene. It really does. I used to hear it was said 
that uh, some of the great preachers, uh, after they left the pastorate or after they died, the church went to pot. That shows he wasn't really that good of a pastor because you should make it so that the people in your congregation are going to follow God with or without you. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. Now, I think it's correct. We ought to teach our people how to follow God whether we're there or not. That's true. But it also is true that my life matters. And if Joshua's not there anymore, it's not going to be the same. I remember in my lifetime, some of the spiritual leaders that many of us were helped by, like Dr. John R. Rice was a great help to me. I actually became acquainted with him in weeks after I was converted. And today, I probably still am a follower of John R. Rice, to tell you the truth, in so many ways. But uh, he died, I think it was in 1980. And I remember hearing a guy say about the next year, he said, ever since Dr. Rice died, everybody has got loose. Now, uh, you might say, what do you mean everybody has got loose? Turn around and look for a guy with a little more gray hair than you. He could probably tell you. (laughs) Yeah, ever since Dr. Rice died, everybody got loose. Because it's a really major deal when somebody dies. In the Bible, when somebody of significance dies, there's a period of trial. Follow it. A period of trial for God's people. And you know what they do about the Lord during that period of trial? There needs to be a revival. A revival through contact with the living God. And if there's not, you know what happens? The people of God go south. (laughs) They go bad. And if they have a revival through contact with the living God. Well, then the people of God go forward in the following of the Lord. So this is an important period of trial when, uh, when Joshua dies. And things are happening here. They're going to end up with bad results, that's for sure. So uh, what are we seeing? Uh, Joshua's dead. And it's the period of trial. What's going to happen to the people of God now? What are they going to do? Well, they're going through a time of testing and trial without a doubt. But it ain't that good. (laughs) Judah and Simeon go to conquer their part of the territory that belongs to Israel. And when they go in there, things are pretty good until we start reading that they could not conquer some of that territory. Matter of fact, If you would look at uh, verse 18. Would you look back at verse 18? And Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. Okay, you get the picture? So they're miraculously going in and they're in conquering Canaanites. Canaanites were professional warriors, and the Israelites all grew up as slaves, so they didn't have any experience. But it was God was going to be with them. So they are having victories, and they are defeating the Canaanites. This is really good. Until they come to a certain group of Canaanites, and they couldn't drive them out. They could not drive them out. But they could. Joshua 
17, 18. Matter of fact, you know what I'm going to do? It's a big room, but people have big voices. We've heard already that women have loud voices here. So I wonder if I can have a volunteer to read for us. Joshua 17, 18. Okay, would you do that? I can do it, but maybe somebody, there's a guy on the front row, perfectly situated to be able to read it to us. So face them and read Joshua 17, 18. Listen to what it says. Wow. When Joshua was still alive, the issue of iron chariots already came up. And so he says, I'm going to tell you from the Lord, you're going to be able to drive them out even if they have iron chariots, even if they're stronger than you and bigger than you, because God is with you. So now watch. Here's Judah. They're defeating these people. They're driving these people out. But now they come to a group of them who have iron chariots, and they say, we can't drive them out because they've got iron chariots. Well, they were already told through Joshua that they could drive them out, even if they had iron chariots. Now, <clears throat> you know what we're going to run into? Compromise. You're going to see this. A whole lot of compromise. Compromise doesn't get you anywhere. But you know what? In the 20th century, that's the last century, uh, evangelical people, Bible believers who were called fundamentalists, took a stand against the liberals in their denominations. Now, a liberal is not what you think it is. A liberal church is not a church with lower standards than yours. A liberal is a person who professes to be a Christian, but he has redefined Christianity so you don't have to believe the cardinal doctrines of the gospel. A liberal will say, we are uh, going to have a great effect on our nation, and we already have seen great progress. America's great sin, slavery, has been defeated. Now we're going to go against child labor and against the abuse of alcohol, and we're moving forward because Christianity is basically the moral teachings of Jesus Christ having an influence on society. History is the churches, although claiming to believe the Bible, we're shifting from individual salvation to societal salvation. <clears throat> and these <coughs> liberals <coughs> did not necessarily have confidence in the teaching of the gospel. <coughs> their beliefs had been undermined through their education in Europe where they were starting to think it doesn't really matter if God created the earth in six days. It doesn't really matter if Jesus Christ's mother was a virgin when he was born. That doesn't matter. The main thing is his teachings, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Christianity is. So it's not going to matter if he rose from the dead. So that's what a liberal is. It's a man with an REV in front of his name who claims a Christianity without a virgin-born Christ without a Christ who is a God-man, without the resurrection bodily from the dead. That's what they had. That's, I grew up in a liberal church. That's what a liberal church is. My pastor did not believe the Bible, and he wasn't ashamed of it. See, And so I never heard the gospel. So anyway, uh, here we are uh, during this time. There's the, the fundamentalists who were evangelicals saw the evil, and they 
exposed it and opposed it, like the book of Jude says that you ought to do. And that's the policy of Bible believers in the middle part of the uh, middle part of the 20th century. They fought against them. But you know what? That isn't easy. Now, did you know that fighting people isn't easy? And you probably know people who think it's fun. But it's not. And after a while, somebody started saying, that's not how we're going to win the day. We're going to win the day by persuading them. By cooperating with them. By respecting them. Bob Jones Sr. Jr. used to say that what we were saying was, if you will call me a scholar, I'll call you a brother. And that's really what basically uh, took place during those years. And uh, so it was a form of compromise. But there's a point I'm going to be making here. It was called the neo-evangelical compromise. Then as things got worse, as time went on, there was a new compromise that we will call the contemporary church compromise, which is Bible believers live a certain way, and our churches have a certain standards. But you know what? If we drop those standards, we could get almost anybody to come into our church. So now we're not going to preach against the things our forefathers did. We're not going to dress like they did. Our music isn't going to sound like the old music. We're going to take our cue from Las Vegas and uh, from Hollywood and win the country by uh, lowering our standards, the contemporary church compromise. And uh, But where does it come from? The compromise that brought the defeat of the Israelites actually came from unbelief. came from unbelief. Sometimes we don't think of that, but in other words, did you know the old-timers used to run into the same problems we do? You know, they used to say, you know, in the old days, they used to bring an evangelist into town who would uh, cry out against sin and preach about hell and would uh, call on people to repent. But you know, people nowadays, they're not going to bear that kind of thing. (laughs) They're not going to like it. So we can't do it that way anymore. It's about uh, meeting a new generation with new methods. And so uh, we're not going to go the old way. Now, did you know the old timers had the same challenges we do? Did you know that in the old days that uh, there were a lot of people who didn't like that kind of preaching? Or I remember hearing that in the old days, people just went to revival meetings because it was the thing to do. I want you to think about that. <clears throat> Use your head. <laughs> Do you think in the year 1910, people would say, let's go down and hear uh, Billy Sunday denounce our sins and tell us we're going to hell? That'll be fun. <laughs> hey, we don't want to miss the revival meetings. Oh, man, those revival meetings are great. They're emotional. They make you afraid you're going to go to hell. I just can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? All the old-time revivalists had the same kind of criticisms that we have heard uh, we will face today. Only the new method is, so we need to change and take those criticisms out of their mouth. 
But do you know what the old timers did? The guy would come to town with a tent. They're going to try to conquer the town for Jesus Christ. He preached the Bible straight. He didn't back off at all. And then the whole town's turn against them. Uh, the mayor of the town is op openly opposing the tent meetings. And uh, uh, I remember hearing the story of John O'Rice was in a town with a tent preaching the gospel, also preaching against sin. And uh, some man came to, came to him after one of the weeknight meetings, and he said, I represent the liquor interest in this town. And you have several times preached against our business, and you're hurting our business. And you know what? If you mention liquor anymore or speak critically of drinking alcohol anymore, I'm coming back here and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bring a gun with me and I'm going to kill you. I warn you, don't do it anymore. And the famous story is that Dr. Rice said, how dare you threaten me with heaven? All I'm saying is the same problems we face today. It's not a new generation. Younger people like to think that they're a new generation, something special. No, it was the same old thing. Well, what would they do if the whole town turned against you because of the preaching of the gospel or because your church has high standards of Christian living? What if everybody said those guys are right-wingers, crazy people? Uh, well, what did they do back in the old days? You know what they did, folks? They had an all-night prayer meeting. Amen. They had an all-night prayer meeting. And you know what? It worked. Amen. There are great stories about facing absolute opposition from the world and the devil and meeting the challenge with an all-night prayer meeting. But it was the character of Christians that changed and made them say, we can't do it like they did in the old days. We're going to have to make some changes. So uh, here in Judges chapter 1, Joshua dies, and they're facing the enemy. They're actually going out and facing him. And now, you know what they're going to do? They're going to compromise how they fight this war uh, from before. And uh, they're going to end up shamefully departing from the commandments of the Lord. And they're going to have great defeat in the book of Judges. And notice this. It says in verses 18 and 19, they could not meet a certain group of Canaanites because they had chariots of iron. But we read in Joshua 17, 18 that they could. That the man of God specifically mentioned the chariots of iron and said, yes, you can with God's help. And you know what? Uh, the fact is, Challenges to the truth of God can be met by faith. And when they said could not, you know what that means? Unbelief. We can't do that anymore. Mm -mm. Did God die? We can't just stand up in the denomination and name those who deny the cardinal doctrines of the faith and, and seek to expel them from our group. We can't do that. We'll lose our career, our pension. We can't do that anymore. This is the church of my father and my grandfather. My relatives are buried out back. <laughs> can't do that. No, it's not can't, it's won't. And the reason is unbelief. And do you know what the reason for the retreat 
of Christianity really is? Unbelief. Amen. Look down at verse 21. And the children of Benjamin, another tribe, did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. We go from could not to did not. Okay, look at verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and her towns, nor Taanach and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, and so on. And we start seeing the term did not. You know what? That means a change in policy. See, before they went right in there with the commission of the Lord to conquer Canaan land, and they went out there believing God that he was going to do miracles to make it so we could win the victory. The walls of Jericho would come tumbling down, and the giants will be defeated by us, and we're just going to trust God. But now, after a while, they said, well, we can't do this. And maybe they gave it a try, but they were defeated. And now after saying, we can't do this, they started saying, we won't do it. They did not. It became a policy. What was unbelief that caused them not to act on the command of God now became a policy. We don't do that. Yeah, we remember when Joshua let us in here, we were supposed to attack these walled cities and believe that a miracle would happen. But you know what? We've learned a thing or two since then. We've matured a little bit. So that's not our policy anymore. And they developed a brand new policy. So it's from could not to did not. Very important. And uh, that's where new evangelical came from. (laughs) New policy. They didn't want to be called fundamentalists anymore. We are new evangelicals. That's who we are. We have a new policy. We don't separate from liberals. We uh, discuss matters and, uh, and cooperate with liberals. We don't leave the denomination. We try to be a good influence, show a new policy, and that's true all along the line. Here are the principles. Then look at verse 28. Everybody look at verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Now, as you have mentioned, tribute is slavery. So uh, they had a new policy. They were not going to, uh, uh, by faith, go after the Canaanites. But the, the, the policy developed. Because, you know, when uh, we let the Canaanites live here among us and disobey God about that matter, We don't really benefit a great deal. We're not going to get killed by Canaanites. And that's a benefit. But you know what? There'd be a way to benefit from our new policy, and that is make them slaves. Wouldn't it be nice to have a few slaves? Have other people do your work for you? So their new policy included tribute. Yes. And it was a new policy that would bring us gain and advantage We're going in there, taking their land, and making them all our slaves. So you can see how we're going down, down, down. It starts with, you know what? We can't face this challenge. We've got to find another way. 
could not, did not. And then tribute. Now notice the sad ending to this chapter. Okay, look down at verse 30. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Naholoi, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became their tributaries. So the next one was Canaanites dwelling among them. Canaanites now live among us. We are in the promised land, but it's not just ours. Rank unbelievers, pagans, live among us, and they play with our kids, and they marry our daughters. They're going to be among us, which was not the will of God, that's for sure. But now, look at verse 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor Ahilab, nor Akzib, nor of Halba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Now, do you see the subtle difference? <laughs> see, because of the compromise, the Canaanites dwelt among them. And now it says, we dwell among them. <laughs> A serious difference. Now it's the Canaan people's country, and we happen to live there. Isn't that nice of them to let us do that? Wow. But now, here is the most miserable ending to the situation. Look at verse 34. The Amorites, that's the hillbillies, uh, forced the children of Dan, now watch this, into the mountain, for they would suffer them to, would not suffer them to come down to, to the valley. Now watch, here goes the compromise. We're supposed to, with the power of God, conquer all of the Canaanites and make their land ours. We're to drive them out and destroy them. But we can't do it. Because I'll tell you, have you seen their chariots? And nobody would say we could do that. But God never said that it would be by natural means. It would be by supernatural means. So now the new policy, we're not going to drive them out. We're going to try to get some of their property and take some of their cities, but we're not going to drive them out. And now we're not just going to do that. We're going to get some advantage. We're going to make them slaves. So the Canaanites are going to be our slaves. We're not going to kill them. We're going to make them slaves. And uh, so the Canaanites dwell among them. And now we dwell among the Canaanites. Isn't that an interesting change? But now what happens? The Danite tribe are being forced into a mountain. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the conquering, forward-moving people of God. Doesn't sound like that. It sounds like the other side. Verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer or allow them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell uh, in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalibim. Yet the hand of the, yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed, so they became tributaries. And the coast of the Amorites was uh, from the going up of Akarabim from the rock and upward. Okay, now what's happening? Now with all this compromise, the tribe of Dan is forced up into a mountain. Forced. Who is winning here? <laughs> forced up into a mountain who wouldn't suffer them to come down. You Israelites better stay up there. Because <laughs> if you come down here, we're going to kill you. 
And in a very embarrassing defeat, they're forced into the mountain, and they stay there. And that's chapter one. <laughs> chapter one from a conquering uh, a nation coming to conquer Canaan with the almighty hand of God on them. And by the end, they're being forced up into a mountain with the Canaanites threatening them and saying, you better not come down. See that down, down, down. And it all came from compromise. You know when God gives us a command, we're supposed to do what he said? What if he tells us to do something we can't do? We do it anyway because if he says we can do it, we can do it. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I'm talking to a preacher right now who's facing something at home. I don't envy you. It's a tough situation. And you know what you know from the word of God you ought to do? You just can't do it. No, you've got to use your head here. Maybe you're going to resign instead. Did you know God made you the pastor of that church to face this situation that you're facing right now? What we need to do is what God has said to do, and then we need to trust him Amen. for the ability and power to do what he said to do. Amen. And you know where the compromise comes? Unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know, Pastor, the young people don't like our music? They're thinking about going down to the so-and-so church. Uh, matter of fact, some of them have already started. And Pastor, I'm going to tell you, we're not going to have a youth group anymore if you don't make a little bit of Allowance for the music. <laughs> okay. You know, what you can say is, you can say, we're going to do what God says. We're going to use music that he likes. Amen. That's, Amen. What we're That's what we've always done. That's what we're going to do now. Right. You can't do that. Now, you can through faith. Amen. Right. I'm going to trust God and my deacons and all of us are going to trust God to work out the problem if we do the right thing. Right. And you know what this forward movement that this whole meeting is about? The revival that ought to come out of all the disasters of 2020, and that's what ought to happen, is a revival. Yeah. What ought to happen is the people of God ought to be revived, and you know what a revival among the saints is going to bring? A great awakening among the lost, and it'll never happen if we compromise. Some of us are right on the edge of compromising. You know what's going to make the difference for you? Faith. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Otherwise, you're going to end up being forced up into a mountain by a bunch of Canaanites who say, you better not come down. No, there's hardly anybody in the world as wimpy as a compromising preacher. Wimpy, did you know that you offended me, Brother Flanders? I may not come back next year. Okay, well. You know what we need to do? We need to love God, we need to believe God, and we need to obey God. And that's our whole job. That's our whole job. And friends, the uh, reason for compromise and finally defeat, where down through history a whole religious movement fizzles, and has a shameful ending. It starts with unbelief. Because if God said it, we can do it. Right. Don't you think? Amen. And you know what? I, I don't know. I didn't do a really good job on that. But we've got notes you can look up. But I want you to study the book of Judges with the idea that the people of God during this 
theocratic period of their history, were learning whether or not to trust God and watch how the compromise brought them to a shameful, embarrassing defeat. And it all started by not believing. I'm talking to somebody right now who may be not in church, but somewhere in your life, you are facing an issue that's really about, is there a God or not? Am I going to believe God? Matter of fact, I remember years ago I came to see the trial of our faith. It's always faith. Am I going to believe God or not in this situation? Then I came to realize, do you know what that question really is? Is there a God? Well, there is a God, folks. And this will be a transforming conference for you. If you find a place to tell God, I'm going to believe you. And I'm going to obey you. And watch God work miracles. Let's bow our heads, can we? Oh, God, thank you for meeting with your people. Lord, when Joshua died, they still had you. And Lord, revival is contact with the living God. And we have prayed this morning already that we'd have contact with you. Thank you for the contact you're making with us right now. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be believing and obedient servants. That's our prayer.